Inside Westminster, chapter 151, No Choice at All. The three Labour leadership candidates had been asked to pre-record their victory speeches, which was the ultimate example of putting one's cart before one's horse. In this age of image, background had become everything. Bookshelves groaning with seminal works were the most popular backdrop, followed by greenery or possibly a view onto the garden. Careful not to broadcast any wealth and privilege or ownership of acres in sought-after locations, Sakir and Hardy posed in front of slatted wardrobe doors, plain and functional being the message he wanted to portray. Make no mistake, we are at war and we must be prepared for the sacrifices we'll have to make. This is a life-and-death situation, orated Sakiran, barely comprehending himself the words which he was articulating. Five was the latest crazy number. Hancock had done three, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, then four of something, and now his five pillars. Sakiran also chose five as his magic number, but this time the five problems he faced in leading the opposition assuming he was elected. These were coronavirus, rewriting Labour policies so that Joe Average wouldn't be horrified slash terrified in equal measure, fighting anti-Semitism, choosing his team, which would allow him to chuck out members who were either a joke, like Julie Thompson, or terrified poor Joe A, with their bitter vitriol, like the Shadow Chancellor had done, and something else which he would make up later. And then the news came that the police had paid a visit to the Scottish Chief Medical Officer's rather grand pad situated in a leafy lane in Edinburgh to chastise her about visiting her second equally lovely coastal home, not once, but twice. How did they know? What ratfink had dobbed on this highly qualified and until that moment highly respected member of the Scottish political elite? Anyway, she was forced to give the most excruciatingly public apology, which Monica Monkfish had hoped would be the end of it. That proved wishful thinking, and later that day, said CMO's resignation was announced. Another key figure, this time the head of the World Health Organisation, had come under intense scrutiny with questions about his cozying up to China's leaders and his attempts to appoint such cruel dictators as Mugabe to senior positions in this august institution. In the worldwide maelstrom caused by the pandemic, no stone was being left unturned, no carpet not being lifted to scrutinise those supposedly elite in charge of fighting this crisis. For only the fourth time in her reign, the Queen addressed the nation with an attempt to calm the storm and boost morale. Coincidentally, behind the scenes, Potty's doctor was contacting the nearest main hospital to Downing Street as he feared for the PM's ability to carry on without much closer medical scrutiny. And so the news broke that the PM had been admitted into hospital. Only as a precaution, it was emphasised. Mitchell Marks, the Foreign Secretary and designate deputy, received the news with immense sadness but calm resolution, announcing at the daily coronavirus news briefing that the PM was still in charge, making key decisions. Some asked why Matthew Shrove hadn't stepped into the PM's shoes. Surely he had been asked. He had, but had declined. Not stupid, our Matthew, as he saw potential political carnage ahead in this no-win situation and wanted to keep his powder dry, so to speak, and his hands clean, not besmirched by any dodgy decisions made on the hoof. No, 
After it all was over, he'd be in there waiting in the wings, sparkly clean and innocent looking. The fact that Sakiran was nominated as leader of the opposition in a landslide victory went almost unnoticed. <laughs>